Good evening, and welcome to all the Union Church. We're glad that you could join us for our service this evening. Uh, just a few announcements. Uh, as a reminder, our summer schedule will be ending um, at the very end of this month of August. Um, but as we are still here, we will continue to have our combined worship services at 9 a.m. And Bible school will be after that. Um, so just be aware of that when September starts up. Also, ladies, today is the, last, or today is the day to sign for Friday night's uh, craft night. You can please uh, read about that, paragraph about that in your bulletins, and you can sign up for that at the women's ministry table, or you can contact uh, Melissa Brock about that. Would you please join me as I open in a word of prayer? Lord, tonight we are grateful for who you are. We are ever reminded, Lord, that you love us and that you supply all of our needs. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is sovereign. Help us to focus on you, Lord, and to uh, remember that this is about you, Lord, and your glory as we uh, divine what you would have for us from your word. Lord, help us to have open hearts, Lord, that our soil, Lord, would be fertile to uh, be able to grow with the seeds that you plant. We thank you again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, please take out your hymnals, and let's open up to hymn number 43, and let's sing about God's great faithfulness. 43. Let's all stand. Let's sing together. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou before we sit down this evening, let's take a few moments. Let's greet those that are around us. Let's take a few minutes.
guys got quiet real fast. I don't know what to do with that. Well, let's keep out our hymnals and you open up to hymn number three. Um, let's stay seated as we sing together, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. Again, that's hymn number three. Good evening. My name is Joe Fisher. I'm a member of the Board of Trustees. Tonight, I have the privilege of praying for our missionaries, Haney and Narwhal Daniel. Let us bow our head and pray. Dear Lord, we thank you how Haney and Narwhal have dedicated their lives to serve you. Please bless them with wisdom and good health and protect them as they reach out to those Muslims' backgrounds through their writing, designing, and promoting their print materials. Please watch over their three children and help them to go spiritually and use them in your work. Now, Lord, we want to thank you for all that you have blessed us with. Give us hearts desire to give back to you because we know that you love a cheerful giver. We pray that this offering tonight will be used in a way that will bring, truly bring glory to you, Lord. Amen. Lord, you are gentle, 
forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Sing amazing love. Amazing love, how can, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true, it's my joy to honor you. Sing amazing love. Amazing love, how can, how can it be? You, my King, would die for me. Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you in all I do. I honor you. You. for prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that we can sing, You Are My King. We thank you that tonight as we look into the scripture, we see another group of people who basically put the negative to that. We don't want you to be our king. We want a human king. I thank you that you're our king and that you're the one who watches over us. You're the one who leads us. You're the one who takes care of us. You're the only one who's worthy of that ultimate title. And we thank you for that. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to look into your word and to see what it is to accept second best and how bad that is when we've got the ultimate king, you yourself. So we thank you for this now. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick up where we left off, believe it or not, back on July 13th. And at the end of the message on July 13th, there was a message that was supposed to be given by Samuel to Saul. And I said, we're going to have to wait to hear what that message is. And we waited, and we're going to see what that is tonight. But I'm going to guess that all of you read ahead, and that everybody's already read 1 Samuel 10. I won't ask you to raise your hands and indicate that, but I'm sure that you were in suspense and you had to do that. We looked at 1 Samuel 9 back then on July 13th, and if you'll turn back there just for a moment, I'm going to ask you to glance at 1 Samuel 9 as I make a few comments about it, just to remind us of what was there, and if you weren't here on that night, then to bring us up to speed a little bit. We saw the providence of God at that point in a planned annoyance. Some donkeys were lost. And that would be a planned annoyance. Uh, it was planned by God, and it was an annoyance, no doubt, to those who owned the donkeys. And that would be to a man by the name of Kish. We see him in verse 
1 of chapter 9, we're introduced to that whole family there. Kish, apparently, who had no chairs in his house because it says he was a man of standing, but I'm not sure that's what that means exactly. But the donkeys were lost. They belonged to Kish. His son was Saul. Saul was then sent to find the donkeys. Donkeys were very important at that time. They were a huge help around the farm. Their loss would be greatly felt, but maybe they were nearby. Maybe they would be found right away, and it would simply be a nuisance. It would simply be an annoyance. Conceivably, could be a big problem. But after three days of not finding the donkeys, Saul was ready to give up. And his servant was not ready to give up. In fact, the uh, servant sacrificially financed a visit to Samuel to see if Samuel could tell them where to find the donkeys. Now, interesting to me in chapter 9, because what we find here is that Saul was told, take one of the servants. Apparently there were a lot, because Kish was a man of standing. That means he was wealthy. Um, Take one of the servants. He chose a servant whose name we don't even know, but he turned out to be one of the heroes in this whole story. So Saul was ready to give up trying to find the donkeys, and it would have been a hardship after those, those amount of days. They weren't sure where to find Samuel, but the servant had said, let's go find the man of God. He'll be able to, to lead us to the direction, at least where they're, where they're headed. And so they went to find him, and the servant was very helpful. They weren't sure where to find him exactly, and they asked some girls. It just says some girls. So we've got one of the servants, and we've got some girls. But as we read through the story, we found out that these girls were very, very helpful. They were informative. They were able to put Saul and his servant in the right place at the right time in order to find where Samuel was going to be. They even told Saul to hurry. The timing was going to be very important. They would be able to catch him before he went for the sacrifice. So we've got some things that appear to be simply events that are lining up um, in a haphazard kind of a way. But we realize when we look at this further that God had this whole rendezvous with Saul and Samuel in mind from the very beginning, long before it happened. The donkeys wandered away at just the right time, and then later on, they wander home when the purpose of them leaving is gone. What must have seemed like an annoyance to Saul and his family actually was a part of God's plan to have Saul in the right place at the right time to become a blessing and a deliverer for God's people. Now, one of the things that we need to see And it can almost be confusing as we're looking through here. All of a sudden, the people say, we would like to have a king. We want to be like all the other people who are around about us. And so they told Samuel this. We want to have a king just like everybody else. We want a king to lead us in battle. And then God is as upset about it as Samuel is. And God says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me because I've been their king thus far. Now they want someone else. But then as we're going to see tonight, and as has been intimated already... God is going to do everything he can to see to it that they're prosperous, that they're blessed, even though they want to go a different direction that he wants them to go. God is not going to abandon them. God is going to make things as easy for them as he possibly can, and they're still going to mess up because they don't have the right king. They have Saul who looks the part, Saul who mentally could be the part, but Saul is not spiritually equipped to do this. Even though God does everything he can, he sends his spirit on him, much like he did the judges. All of this is going to happen, and it's going to appear as if maybe God really wanted them to have a king because he does everything that he can to help them. But the problem is they don't help themselves. And so nothing here we can see was coincidental. No coincidences here at all. There's nothing that's accidental. Nothing that was random. There's not luck involved here at all. It's all God. In fact, God had even told Samuel in advance about what would happen and when. If you look at chapter 9, verse 15, just as one example. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. So again, we see that Nothing was coincidental. God was orchestrating this whole thing, bringing it all together. He even told Samuel what was going to happen a day before it happened. I'm going to send you a man. This didn't happen by accident. 
This was an appointment that God had set up. The only thing is that he didn't tell Saul that it was an appointment. Saul didn't know, Samuel did, and God did at this particular point. Now what we saw about God when we were talking about this the last time, what we saw about this was that God, everything that he did was uplifting. It's all about God here. It's not about Saul. It's not about Kish. It's not about Samuel. It's not about the servant. It's not about the donkeys. It's not about these some girls who were very helpful. It's all about God. And as we look at this story, it's great to be able to see that. And we, we went over this a little bit. His omniscience can be seen there. God knew everything before it was going to happen because God could bring it all about. His love is seen there. He's still loving his people. He's sending a deliverer for them. He's sending them the king that they asked for. His care is there. His mercy is there. His grace is there. His power is there. His guidance and his providence. In fact, we spent most of the evening talking about his providence, the way God acts in human affairs. God didn't create us and leave us alone. God's still involved. He's involved in everything that goes on in your life, everything that goes on in my life. His sovereign control was seen, his deliverance, all of that and a lot more. So chapter 9 is telling us about God. Now, the question that I asked, this point was made last time as well, if you had been Kish or Saul or someone in the family, what would you have initially thought about these donkeys that had gone missing? What would have been your reaction? And I I know I've thought about this a lot, what my action might have been. But if you can picture these donkeys that are here, and you can see, I think you can see pretty well on the screen, they can carry a whole lot. They truly were beasts of burden. They helped an awful lot in everything that was going on. They were very, very valuable to the people of that particular time. Today, think about it this way, a little bit more than annoyance. What if this had been maybe a 2015 Ford Super Duty truck, a pickup truck that uh, all of you are going to be going out to buy, no doubt? Uh, or an F-150, but this this new one that's coming out, this Super Duty truck, 440 horsepower, 31,200 pounds maximum towing. Uh, What if you lost that? What if you went out one day and it wasn't there? Um, You went out there and maybe somebody stole it, or if you're like I am, you parked it in a parking lot and you couldn't find it. I did it again Friday. Went to the wrong parking lot, and I was looking all over for my car, And it couldn't have been there because it was the wrong parking lot. Well, what if that happened? So put yourself back in time at that place. And let me ask you a series of questions. Do you think that your reaction from the missing donkeys, do you think you would have been annoyed? Do you think you would have been frustrated? Would you have complained? Would you have whined? Would you have worried? Would you have cursed? Would you have stomped your foot? I went through that little list myself. And um, if you're new here, you might think the pastor's got it all together. Pastors do that. They're real good people. Uh, uh, I would have probably reacted in five of those ways that I just said, five of those seven. Uh, on a bad day, I would have reacted to five of them. I, I don't believe that I would have cursed, and I don't believe I would have stomped my foot. But I think all of those other ones, frustrated, complaining, whining, worried, annoyed, I think I would have been. I think it would have been, and I'd like to say that I wouldn't, but I'd like to say I would have instead did what we talked about three weeks ago, and that would be I would have instead gone to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and whatever the annoyance would be, I'd trust the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. In all my ways, acknowledge him, because he promised if I did that, he would direct my paths. He would make the paths level and smooth. That's how I'd like to react on a good day, and believe me, that's what I'm working on, that's what I'm praying about, and I'm asking for God's Spirit to do that for me, because... There, there are some things in here that have been very, very helpful to me, and I hope they'll be helpful to you. And I, I'd almost like to go back and, and redo all of chapter 9, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do some of it. But what I would like to have reacted to, or what I would like to in the future, would be Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 that says, And we know, you catch that? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to to his purpose. But I love those two words, know and all. We know. So we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. There's no doubt. We know that in all things, 
There's not even one thing left out. One thing right now that might be troubling you. One thing right now that might be annoying you or frustrating you. It's not something that's left out of this equation because in all things God is working for our good and God works providentially in our lives. He didn't leave us here on our own. I'd also like to believe that I could take a verse like James 1, in fact two verses in James chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 where it says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever, and that's nothing left out either, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And so this point was also made. If God is sovereign, and I think if we believe the Bible, we've got to come to that conclusion, that God is totally sovereign, he's totally in control, and if his providence still operates, and I think we've got to believe that, I know we've got to believe that. So if God's sovereign, his providence still operates, and Romans 8, 28, and Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, if all of those things are true, then a series of questions. Is there any such thing as an annoyance? Is there really any such thing as an annoyance? Should we be getting annoyed? Do you realize that if we trusted God fully, we wouldn't ever have to be annoyed again? There is no such thing as an annoyance. If all of those other things are true that we've been saying. And then another question, is the way we react really frustration or is it faithlessness? Am I frustrated because I'm not trusting? I'm frustrated because I don't believe that this is one of those all things that work, God works together for my good. Or I'm frustrated because I don't really fully believe that this is a trial that I can be joyful in. Another question. Are all hardships blessings in disguise? Is there truth to that? I believe there is. All the hardships are blessings in disguise or God wouldn't have verses like we've just said in the scriptures. Now, at the end of chapter 9, verse 27, Samuel told Saul to send his servant on ahead. He had a private thing he wanted to tell him, and he had a message from God to deliver. We've waited several weeks to see what that message was, and now we're going to find it in chapter 10. And we find out more about God. We find out more about the God that we can trust when things happen that we don't really plan ourselves or want to have happen, but we trust God through them first thing that we see here is the message involved an anointing. I'd like to read just verse 1 right now. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? So there were four actions that were taken here in verse 1. First of all, Samuel took a flask of oil. So he took the oil. This was special oil. This was consecrated oil we know from elsewhere in the Scripture. He poured it on Saul's head. Some of the commentators point out, in fact, most of them say this in the Old Testament, this anointing with oil symbolized the, the setting apart of someone or even something for divine service. This anointing was saying, God is in this, and this oil is symbolic of the fact that God wants you for a special mission. God wants you for a special purpose. You're set apart. And it was also, we're told, accompanied by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit when it occurred. So when Samuel poured oil on Saul's head, that represented an act of God's approval of Saul as leader of his people. It says he kissed him as well which would indicate respect, it would indicate congratulations, it would indicate that here was something very special that was going on. And then it it also says, after he kissed him, that he spoke some words. And what were these particular words? Well, the words were this. Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Now, that seems a little bit ambiguous, Something a little bit left out there. What exactly does that mean? Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Why didn't he come out and say, God's made you king over these people? He's made you leader over his inheritance. Interesting that if you have an NIV Bible in front of you, whether it's a study Bible or not, you'll see in the margin there's a text note 
the text note actually appears in the ESV, in the, in the actual text itself. And here's what it says in verse 1 in the ESV version. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? That's his inheritance. It's his people, Israel. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Very interesting to be able to see exactly what's going on here. It's not ambiguous at all. Because what Saul was told is you're going to be prince of the people. That's the inheritance. You're going to be the leader of these people. You are going to be the king. Now, how did Saul understand what was going on? Let's go back to chapter 9 for just a minute. And again, back to verse 15 that we've already looked at. Remember in verses 15 and 16 where the Lord told Samuel that Saul was coming to him the next day. Well, then, as we continue reading and we look down to verse 20, As for the donkeys, Saul was told you lost three days ago. Do not worry about them. They have been found. And then this comment. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and all your father's family? Well, then Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? It shows, and especially as we look at chapter 10, we haven't gotten to this far yet, but in verses 21 and 22, when they went to declare who the king was, Saul was found hiding in the baggage. And so what we're seeing here is that Saul's reaction to all of this is that he needed some extra encouragement to overcome his reluctance, perhaps some lack of confidence. Or if you want to be real nice, you could say he had some extreme humility but it appears as if he did not feel he was equal to this task at all. He looked the part of a king on the outside, but on the inside there was timidity, there was fearfulness going on. That's why what comes next is clearer to understand, and that's why what we just read from the ESV when it says, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Signs were often given to people who had a little struggle understanding that God was actually going to do what he said he was going to do. You look at Gideon and you look at some of the others who were given signs. And so the message was to involve three signs. And let's read about them in verses 2 to 7. Here's the first sign. When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? That's the same thing that Saul had said to his servant would happen. He said, my father's going to be worried about me. Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Three signs then to confirm to Saul and to the people that God divinely called him, God divinely commissioned him. So three signs, and I think they were pretty definitive. If those three things happened, I think Saul would have to say, Yes, the Lord is in this. These things could not have all happened by guesswork or by coincidence. So three signs. Sign number one in verse 2 that we read about, it involved the two men. And we'll get to it in just a moment. Sign two in verses 3 and 4 involved three men. And sign number three in verses 5 through 7 involved the whole procession of men 
who were there. And the comment on sign three, Saul would actually, it says, be changed into a different person. The Spirit of God would come on him in power. He would prophesy with the prophets. And this kind of prophesying has nothing to do with the predictive element. They were simply worshiping and they were talking, they were singing, no doubt, and they were, they were uh, saying things about the Lord. And they were at a high place, coming down from a high place, not where false gods were worshipped, but they were worshiping, sacrificing, praying. The high place, that's what they did at places like this. And this was Gibeah. They also did it at Ramah. And there was a promise that the Lord would be with him. Now, quoting from one of the commentators here, D.A. Carson, I think he puts these signs into good perspective for us. The first sign in verse 2 was to assure him that he could put the past behind him His future role was not that of a farmer. The second sign, verses 3 and 4, was to assure him that the Israelites would recognize him as king. The loaves of bread were part of the offerings being taken to the shrine at Bethel so the men would not give them casually to any passing stranger but only to somebody of very high status. The third sign, verses 5 and 6, would give him assurance that he had the necessary gifts and abilities for the task of leadership. The judges before him had all been equipped for leadership by the gift of the Spirit of God, and Saul would recognize that he was being equipped in the same way. Once these signs had been fulfilled, Saul could have full confidence to act as king because God would clearly be with him. So there was the promise of these three signs. Well, what happened with the signs? And let's pick up what happened in verses 8 through 16 as the story goes on. In verse 8... Verse 8 is kind of an interlude. Uh, This isn't going to happen immediately. This we read about later on in chapter 13. But ultimately, Saul's told, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. And then we pick up with what's happening exactly at that time. As Saul turned to leave, excuse me, to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, He assured us that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. And so two very significant actions occurred next. Saul's heart was changed by God, and all the signs were fulfilled that day. With regard to the third sign, more comments were made. Verse 12, interesting. What does that mean? Who is their father? And then it became a proverb. A saying, is Saul also among the prophets? Well, that meant that this was not something expected. They weren't expecting Saul to be among the prophets, to be there prophesying and praising God along with the prophets. And so when they said, is Saul among the prophets, it applied to something unexpected. The unexpected appearance of a person in a novel character or occupation or situation. In other words, if somebody were to say of me, Is Paul Thompson among the comedians? That would be very unexpected and out of place. And everybody would say, what? No way. That's why I said that about the standing thing earlier, so that you could appreciate that. But when they're saying, is Saul among the prophets? The implied answer is, there's no way he's among the prophets. And they wanted to know who's the father, and and the commentators are unclear exactly what they're talking about there. Could be a reference back to Kish, or it could be, uh, to the prophets who were there, but they're, they're, they're 
making a, a derisive comment about Saul there. There's been such a change in him. And that became a proverb then. When they saw somebody else, they would never expect to be in a particular situation. Uh, that's when they would use that. And then we had that little interlude with Saul's uncle in verses 14 to 16. It shows us, again, either humility or timidity or denial. He only told his uncle part of the story. He didn't tell his uncle that Samuel had said he was going to be king. Well, let's, let's go to the rest of the scripture here and see the presentation of the king, which takes the rest of the chapter beginning in verse 17. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, no, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man that the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some troublemakers said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. Well, there they are at Mizpah. It was the place of a lot of congregational meetings that they had. So when they needed to get everybody together, that's where they would get them. Uh, They would come and they would talk about certain situations. A revival could take place. There are all sorts of things. Samuel reminded the people that God viewed their desire for a king to be a rejection of himself. You asked for it, he said, against God's clearly revealed will. Now you have it. We read where the process was initiated. It showed that God had a particular individual in mind for them. There's a good possibility that this process included drawing lots. In fact, the ESV says that in their text, that they drew lots to determine who it was that was the king. But it was God's process. Saul was chosen, but there was a problem. No corpus delecti, as they say. No body. Where was he? Of course, he was hiding among the baggage. It tells us again, this is the second time, he looked like a king should look. He was head and shoulders over everyone else. No one else was like him. You notice what's happening here? God did not stack the deck against them by giving them an unkingly-like king. God could have done that. He could have given them the worst person in the kingdom and said, here's your king, and therefore they were set to fail. He gave them the best person for the job that was there other than the real king himself. Verse 25, there were regulations that were there for the king. If you want to read about them, they're in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. You can read them at your leisure. It says, then Saul went home. There was a mixed reaction. There were some people there who were, they're called sons of Belial in some translations. They're they're nasty people. They didn't want him to be the king, but a lot of people were for him at that particular time. Now, so far we've been speaking of God's permissive will. God permitting the Israelites to have a king, even though he warned them that this was not his preceptive will or his revealed will or his decretive will, whatever you would like to say. This was not the best thing for them, but God would permit them to have what they wanted. Now, I want to illustrate this. This will take a couple of minutes. Parents also exercise permissive will with their children from time to time. Have any of you, you don't have to raise a hand, but have you ever 
permitted your children to do things that you didn't think were in their best interest, but okay, if you insist on it, you're going to have to learn this lesson the hard way. I'm not going to protect you from absolutely everything. You're going to have to learn this the hard way. An example. Imagine this scene. It's February. There's snow on the ground. It is very, very cold. Two little boys have gotten a tent for Christmas. And it seems that summer will never come. In fact, the tent's going to rot away before they can use it. At least that's what they're thinking. Since December 26th, they've been after their parents to try out the tent. They want to spend a night out in the yard in the tent. The parents have exhausted 35 logical reasons why it isn't a good idea. Catching pneumonia, of course, being one of the 35. Finally, the parents decide that some lessons may need to be learned the hard way. So they tell the kids, okay, on Friday night, you may camp in the backyard. That is the permissive will of the parents exercised. But now the parents have some choices. They've got three choices, in fact. They can try to leave things just like normal so they don't exaggerate their case and so they don't do anything special except they say to the kids, okay, get your sleeping bags. You can go out there. We'll set the tent up and we'll, do, we'll help you. We'll do what we can do. But they're not doing anything extraordinarily unusual with what's going on. That's one choice. The second choice is that they can be overprotective. They can try to make sure that the discomfort of their children can be minimized out there. Or thirdly, they can make things even harder than they normally would be by manipulating the circumstances to be even harsher than they ordinarily might be. Because in their mind, the worst thing that can happen is that the kids can go out there and have a great time. And we don't want that to happen. The hard way would be if dad went outside and started making bear noises in the middle of the night. Or if mom packed sandwiches of beets and cauliflower to give them. Or the doors of the house were told to be locked. Don't expect to get back in the house. If you're going to be here, you're going to be there the whole night. That includes bathroom privileges. You've got to wear your summer pajamas. It's Friday nights. When Saturday morning comes, there'll be no cartoons for you. I don't think the kids would last very long when the parents manipulate as much as they possibly can against them. The normal way doesn't need any explanation, but here's how the loving way might be. A loving way might be if mom and dad bundled the boys up with 12 layers of thermal underwear, put them two inches from the porch with the door open, if they served steaming thermoses of hot chocolate, if dad didn't make bear noises, if they sent the TV out to them on a long extension cord. All of that might mean that the kids would last a little bit longer. Now let me ask you a question. Which way would you react to that situation just described? And I'm not sure that everything is black and white there. There there are probably some things that could overlap and you could go one way or another with that. But think about that. Would you stack the deck against the kids so that they would see the folly of their choice and the wisdom of yours in an artificial, contrived, exaggerated way? Or would you be neutral? Or would you show loving care and concern for them? Realizing that they've made a foolish choice, they haven't taken your advice, but you love them, you want them to experience the natural consequence of what they've done. You know they're going to be in for a pretty rough night anyway, no matter how you do it. Well, let's shift gears from there, and let's go back into 1 Samuel chapter 10. How do you think God would react to this kind of of a situation. What we've just seen shows us clearly how God reacts. Remember I said earlier, for a while we almost forget that he does not want the Israelites to have a king at this time. That's almost lost sight of. He doesn't immediately zap them off the earth. He doesn't stack the deck against them. He doesn't contrive self-fulfilling prophecies. He doesn't tell them it's not going to work for you and then do everything that he can to make sure it doesn't work. He allows them to experience the inevitable consequences of their willfulness, of their giving into this terrible combination we talked about several weeks ago. Terrible combination of wanting something because it looks good and because everyone else is doing it. Yet he still protects them. 
He offers them deliverance. He shows them His love. He makes sure that their choice, which is second best, His will is always best. Their choice is second best. He wants them to understand that it can be as promising to them as possible, but the gap between first choice, God's will, and second choice, our way, the gap is infinite. And God tells us that. He tells us that in Isaiah chapter 55, among other places. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the lesson becomes very clear. Don't ever settle for second best. Don't ever settle for it because second best is misleading. Second best is worst. It's awful when we're comparing it with what God's best is. God permits us to have second best, but he doesn't abandon us. So don't ever settle for second best. Do you know what happens? If you look at the screen, you, you see what's happening here. This is not the same event, but you can see on the left, we've got a gold medal. She looks pretty happy. We've got a silver medal, second best in the middle. He doesn't look at all happy. We've got a bronze medal on the right. She doesn't look happy either. Uh, in, in the Olympics or in some type of an event similar to that, there's a huge gap between first and second, but when we're talking about God's best and our second best, there's an infinite gap between them, miles apart. God permits us to have second best, but he doesn't abandon us. Now look at chapter 10, verse 24, for just a moment. Look at chapter 10, verse 24. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man, the Lord? has chosen. He gave them the best available that they would want. There is no one like him among all the people. I think that's very, very significant. Again, he didn't give them some wimpy, worn out, incapable, and unappealing leader. He gave them Saul, that there was no one like him among the people. We saw the same thing in chapter 9. Saul would be used of God if he would let him. God wasn't setting them or Saul up for a deliberate fall. He even specially equipped Saul to be the best he could be. He didn't give them a Hitler or a Saddam Hussein or Stalin. He didn't give them Alfred E. Newman. He gave them the best that was there. If you look back to verse 1 in chapter 10, there were three very important advantages that were given by the anointing. Even by that very anointing, three advantages. First of all, he was set apart for divine service. God can use even enemy kings for his purpose. God's still sovereign, even in the area of his permissive will. And so God set apart this man for his service. You'll notice also he was given the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what's going on with that? It's as if Dad camped out in the backyard with the kids. And he promised that he would be with Saul. He wasn't going to leave him on his own. The third advantage, his person, his body was declared sacred and inviolate. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. David knew that very well. David had a chance to kill Saul, his enemy. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. Three very important advantages right from the outset of this chapter. Samuel's the one that God used in this, and Samuel's the one who said, has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance, the prince over his people. God wants you to be the best king possible. We see once again, even in wrath, God remembers mercy. Let me try to illustrate this one more time. God's will is not A plus, and our will is B. Do you understand that it's not that God gets an A plus for his will, and for our way we get a B it's pass-fail. And God gets an A++++. Plus, plus, plus. And when we get second best, we don't get a B. We get an F. And we get an F minus, minus, minus. And you can go infinite with the pluses, and you can go infinite with the minuses. There's a huge gulf between his revealed will and his permissive will. Don't ever settle for second best. Don't ever settle for second best in a choice of partners. Some people do. 
They know that, I, I understand that this is not the person that God would necessarily have for me, maybe his first choice, but I'm getting tired of waiting for that first choice. Don't settle for second best in the priorities of life that you make then, or even in the habits that you develop, or in your job situation, or in your leisure time activities. The point that we see all over this is that we live within God's preceptive will, not his permissible. We do what it says here. No substitutes will be accepted. We do what we know he wants, not what we think he may let us get away with. And his people constantly settle for second best. His people then. I hope his people now won't do that. And I hope that we'll be able to to see from here that we've got a God of providence who is taking every area of our life and his providence is active. It's in view. We don't have to complain again. We don't have to be annoyed again. We don't have to be frustrated if we're really trusting that this God is who he really is. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us again. It's a story from of old, but you've told us that everything that's there in that Old Testament is written for our example. It's written so that we can learn. And we do want to learn. We want to learn more about you. What a great God you are. A God who can be trusted. Who can be trusted with the minor annoyances and with the major troubles that come into our lives. Help us to be able to trust you with all of our hearts. Not to lean to our own understanding because our own understanding is a fake crutch that will splinter beneath us. We instead keep leaning on you and not us. Because you never fail, never have, never will. I pray that um, as I struggle with this and the implications of this in my life, that you would help me not to show that frustration and that annoyance and help me not to get frustrated by what goes on, um, but instead turn it over to Proverbs 3 and James 1 and Romans 8. Well, please take out your hymnals and let's open up to hymn number 10 and continue to worship the true King of Kings. Let's stand and sing together. I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. The donkeys got loosed. Somebody's going to tell you that within the next day, week. How are you going to react? Heavenly Father, help us to react in a way that would glorify you and indicate 
that we pay attention to a providential God that we can lean on. So take us to the world to be not of the world. We know we're in the world, but help us to be salt, light, and fragrance, reflecting what you want to be seen in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.